0: saddest chapters in the book of Genesis, we see Isaac, his wife, his kids, and all of them are just blowing it. They're sinning. They're doing exactly what God would not want them to do. Isaac goes against God's word, and he's wanting to bless Esau, even though God clearly said it was Jacob that was going to be the one that was going to take the blessing. Uh, then Rebecca and then Jacob they conspire together to deceive their dad, and they're successful in their deception. And they go to extreme lengths with getting animal hair on Jacob and um, making a stew. And they go through all of this, and uh, Isaac um, is deceived, and um, Esau finds out, and he understandably gets angry, but he lets his anger get the best of him, and now he wants to kill his brother. And he says, "Well, as long as my father's alive, I'll wait. But once my father dies," Then I'm gonna kill Jacob. And Rebecca hears about this and obviously she's quite concerned and so she says, okay, I got to get a new plan. We got to get Jacob out of here uh, because if he stays, his brother's going to kill him. And so she comes up with another deceptive plan. She wants to get Isaac to send Jacob away, but she can't tell Isaac the real reason is because Esau wants to kill him. So she comes up with another plan, which probably had some truth to it. She basically says, hey, I don't want Jacob marrying any of these Canaanite women. We need to send him away so that he can marry Uh, a woman from my family. Uh, And so that's where we left off in chapter 27 with everybody doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. And now we come to chapter 28. and It's going to start off uh, right where we left off, Uh, but we're going to see more encouragement. Last chapter was kind of learning what not to do. This chapter we see a lot of God's grace. You know, a wonderful theme throughout the Bible is we see like all of us, people who fail, people who are doing foolish things like we see all through Isaac's family and we see through pretty much every person in Scripture. But we see a constant theme of right after someone does that, God comes on the scene and he pours his grace upon individuals uh, and he gives it to them. And that's what we're going to see here tonight in chapter 28 with Jacob as we see, he's a deceiver, he's a liar, he's done all this to try to get what you know, he feels is his, but he's doing it in his own way, listening to his mom, bad advice, and he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve the blessing of God, he doesn't deserve anything that God's going to give him, but yet we're going to see him receive grace in this passage. And hopefully that encourages you, because you and I are a lot like Jacob. You know, we are sinful, uh, we are those who do things like he does, And it's great that God's grace is given to us as well. Uh, And so we're going to see a lot of the same characters as last week, some doing foolish things, some learning some great lessons like Jacob. Uh, And so let's see uh, what we can learn here from chapter 28. And so remember, we end with uh, Rebecca saying, hey, Jacob's got to go. I need to try to convince my husband to send him away because I don't want Esau to kill him. And this is the last thing she says to Isaac that ends chapter 27. I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? If Jacob stays around, I'm not going to be someone that's going to be nice to live with. You know, what good is it to me if he marries a woman from here? Because remember, you know, uh, Esau married the Canaanite woman and it brought grief to his parents. And so she's using this to get Isaac to a place where he's like, yeah, you're right. We need to send him away because, you know, leaving the promised land was a big deal. So there had to be some good reason for why Isaac would be willing to send his son away from the promised land. Uh, And this is going to be the reason. So now... Right after this request, we're going to see how Isaac responds here in chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Pedan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So Rebekah comes up with her plan. She tells Isaac, we need to have Jacob marry a woman that's not a Canaanite. And he says, all right, you know what, that's a good plan. Let's send him to your family. Let's send him to your brother Laban, and Laban's got some daughters, and, you know, that will be a great place for him to find a wife, and so we'll send him back to where you came from, and he won't take a wife from the Canaanites woman. And after he does this, he comes, he brings Jacob in, he tells him, that's what I want you to do, and then he blesses him. And as we saw last chapter, he was trying to go against God's plan and bless Esau instead of Jacob. Then he discovered, you know what, even in the midst of him trying to bless Esau and go against God's plan and God's sovereignty, Jacob is still the one who was blessed. And now he's not trying to go against it anymore. He blesses his son, but he doesn't just bless him like he did more generally last chapter. Now he gives the specific blessing of, I want to give you the blessing of Abraham. The blessing that God gave to Abraham and then gave to Isaac. And now he says, I want that to be for you, son, that you would be a great nation, that your descendants would inherit the promised land, that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That threefold promise, that's what he prays that God will give to Jacob. And so after he does this, he says, okay, now I want you to go to Laban. Now the sad reality is once Jacob leaves, his dad's never going to see him again. And his mom's never going to see him again. Remember, last chapter, you know, she thought it's just going to be a, for a few days. You know, he'll just be for a little bit of time, and Esau will cool down, and, you know, great, they'll get married. He's going to find a wife. He's going to come back. We're going to have grandkids. It's going to be so great. He's going to be gone for 20 years, and his parents are never going to see him again. Uh, so they obviously don't realize what's about to transpire, but, you know, all the, the plotting of Rebecca ultimately comes back to not bless her, but hurt her in the end. Now, this is the first time that we see Isaac says anything about not wanting his sons to marry Canaanites. We saw at the end of chapter 26, they were grieved that Esau did this, but we didn't see anything about Isaac actually saying to his sons, you know what, don't marry any of the women around here. Now Esau, he's there, he's watching this, he's seeing. oh wait a second, they're saying to Jacob, don't marry Canaanite women, and they're so serious about it, they're sending Jacob all the way back to Mom's, where mom's from so that he can marry a woman there. And he realizes something, because who did Esau marry? Two Canaanite women, right? Genesis 26, 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of uh, Bere the Hittite, and Basemith, the daughter of Alon the Hittite, and they were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau, he marries two women, and we noted the problem of that in itself, but he marries two Canaanite women, and, you know, we're told that they were a grief to Isaac and Rebekah, but maybe he didn't realize why. Because it doesn't seem like they ever expressed, hey, don't marry these women. And now all of a sudden Esau is seeing, they didn't want this. They obviously never wanted me to marry these women. And remember, Esau is wanting something more so from his dad than his mom. He wants the approval. He wants the blessing. At the end of last chapter, he was weeping. Isn't there another blessing for me? I know you gave the blessing to Jacob, but surely you have something more for me. He wants the approval and blessing of his dad. And now he's seen, wait a second. You just sent Jacob to find a woman that's not a Canaanite. I have two Canaanite wives. There's a problem here. I did something that that you didn't want. And so now we're going to see how uh, Esau responds to this news that he's probably just aware of that my wives have never pleased you because you never wanted me to marry Canaanite women. So let's see what he does. Verse 6 through 9. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac, so Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he has. So Esau finally realizes, okay, my dad doesn't like it that I have Canaanite wives. I just thought he didn't like them, but he actually never wanted me to marry them. And I want to please dad." Uh, now, it could have been, I just want to please dad because he, you know, remember he was the favorite and his dad loved him. And, and now there's kind of like oh, a sense of uh, you're not pleased with me. You didn't give me the blessing or maybe he just wants the blessing. But either way, he wants dad to be pleased with him. And so he comes up with a plan of how he's going to go about doing that. OK, you don't like my Canaanite wives. You sent my brother to go to my mom's family. I got a plan. If I marry someone from your family, surely you'll be happy. Because that's what he's looking at. Okay, I'm going to go to Ishmael. Ishmael is the half-brother of Isaac. So surely if I marry within the family of Isaac, Isaac will be happy with me. And so Esau kind of coming up with this plan of how he's going to get back in the good books with his dad. And so he goes and he marries a third wife. Uh, and so he's thinking, hey, this is going to be good because, you know, yeah, they don't like my first two, but surely they're going to like the third one because it's connected to Isaac. Now, we're not told if Isaac was pleased by this or if he was, saw this as, you know, just like the other two wives. They were grief to him. We're not told that. But something that we see in Esau's life is that he is focused on pleasing the wrong people. If you remember back in chapter 25, Esau comes in, he's hungry he has the birthright that's coming to him because he's the oldest. And we noted that that was not just a, a financial blessing, but it was a spiritual head of the home once the father died, which he didn't really concern himself with. And so when he gets there, his brother's making a stew, and he decides, you know what, instead of making my own food, or, or you know, I'm just going to please myself, and I'm going to have my brother's stew, and I'm willing to sell my birthright to get it. Here's a man who was just like, you know, I just want to please myself. I don't care that, you know, that's a pretty big sacrifice. It's a pretty big thing I'm giving up. But I don't really care about being the spiritual head of this home. Anyway, you can have it, Jacob. Just give me the stew. And now we see him here. I want to please dad. Oh, and I'm going to marry a third wife in order to do it. That's my desire. I want to please my dad. And the problem that Eastall has here is ultimately we're seeing in his life He hasn't come to the conclusion that the person I should be seeking to please is God. I'm trying to please myself. I'm trying to please my dad. Maybe I'm trying to please others, but I'm ultimately not seeking to please God. It definitely wouldn't have pleased God that he gave up and sold his birthright because he didn't really care about the spiritual leadership of the family. It wouldn't have pleased God that he married a third wife. Uh, It wouldn't have pleased God that he married from Ishmael, the son of the flesh. I mean, he's thinking, oh, this is going to please Isaac, but it wouldn't please God. And that's the problem that we see here in Esau's life, that he's not really focused on pleasing the right person. You know, Jesus is definitely the perfect example of who to please and how often to please them. John 8, 29, we're told this, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that... Please him. Notice this: what what we're told here. You know, Jesus says, "I always do the things that please the heavenly Father." That's what my life's all about. Remember when Jesus was a boy and he's there in Jerusalem with his parents and they lose him, and for three days they're searching for him, and then they come and they find him in the temple, and they're like, "You know, what are you doing? You you scared us so much. You know, what have you done to your father and I?" And he's like, "Didn't you know it's about to be? I was supposed to be about my real." Father's business, my heavenly father's business, that's what I'm all about. You know, even at a young age, Jesus was focused on pleasing the right father, focused on pleasing the right person. Esau was focused on pleasing himself, pleasing his dad, and it ultimately hindered him from pleasing God. And you have probably discovered something that I've discovered as well. When we seek to please anything, any person, anything, ourselves, other than God, It hinders us, you know, and obviously if you're just like, I could care less about pleasing God, then you're not going to please him. But but hopefully as Christians, we're in that place where it's like, I want to please God and please myself, or I want to please God and please the culture. I want to please God and please this person or that person. And we think, well, I can do both. You know, I can surely please all these other things and please God at the same time. And I know in my own Christian life, I struggled with that, of trying to, you know, please multiple uh, individuals. And I always discovered the one that I end up not pleasing is God. And that's, you know, it seems to always work that way. But Jesus shares with us some insights that help us understand why that is. In Luke 16, 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know, the the main role of a servant is to please the master. You know, that's what he's there for. If you're not pleasing the master, you're in trouble. But, you know, that should be the desire. I'm serving the master and I want to please the master. And Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? You can't have more than one. You can't be trying to please this master here and then have another master over there that you're trying to please as well. It, It doesn't work what's going to happen is you're going to love the one and hate the other. You're going to despise the one and and be loyal to the other. You can't have two. And this is so often what we try to do in our Christian lives of like, all right, God, you're my master, but I also am my own master, and I have this person as my master, and I'm seeking to please all these different things. And we wonder, why is it I keep failing to please God? Well, because we got too many masters. We're trying to please too many people, and ultimately we're not going to end up pleasing God in the process. So the first thing I want you to take note of tonight is we need to seek to please God over everything else. You know, we live in a culture where there is so much, you know, we're bombarded with so many things that, hey, they're telling us, please yourself. They're telling us, please the culture, please the world. You know, we just have so many different avenues and social media and all these different things where it's like, hey, these are the things that you should please. And almost all of those influencers are saying, don't worry about pleasing God. You know, please this, please this, please this. And so often as Christians, we struggle with, oh, well, maybe I should please myself more. Or maybe I should please this. Or maybe I should please that. And at the end of the day, we're not pleasing the one that we ultimately should because we're not focused on pleasing God above everything else. This is what we see with Esau. He didn't please God ultimately because he was more concerned about pleasing other things. Himself, his dad, and probably the list was much longer than that. But let that be a warning to us of the importance of focusing on hey, the one I need to please more than anyone, the only real one I need to please is God. And in pleasing God, we also need to realize I will not please some other people. That's the opposite of that. We notice that hey, when I'm seeking to please myself or others, the the byproduct of that is sometimes I'm not going to please God, but when I'm seeking to please God, there's going to be sometimes I'm not going to please people that I want to please. You know, I, I, I love them. I want them to be happy. But you know what? Sometimes they're not going to be. I mean, in a simple example, when I moved away from family and went to Scotland, there were people who weren't happy with that. But I had to say, you know what? Sorry, I'm here to please God. If God wants me there, that's what I'm going. If you don't like it, take it up with him. You know, tough. At the end of the day, if we're going to say, well, I'm going to please them more, then, okay, well, let's not do what God wants us to do and let's please them because sometimes you're in that place where it's like pleasing God is not always uh, the thing that others want. You saw that in Jesus' life. Even his own disciples weren't happy with him sometimes when he was doing what God wanted him to do. Definitely the religious leaders weren't. And so you got to get to a place where you realize in pleasing God, there will be others that I don't please, and I'm okay with that. Because pleasing God is by far the most important thing I can do. Well, now the story shifts back to Jacob. He's told to leave Canaan. He's obedient to that. He's heading to Laban's. And on his journey, something very important happens to him. This is a great turning point in his life because up to now, he doesn't have much of a relationship with God. He's just, all we see from him is, you know, a pretty deceptive, sinful guy. And he's going to have an encounter with God that's really going to help transform him and change him. Let's see what happens in verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down at the place and sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So Jacob's on this journey, and it's like any journey, especially when you're walking. He gets tired, it gets dark, he's, you know, probably about almost about 50 miles from, you know, where he started, and it's right now it's time to go to sleep, to rest, but he's not in town, he's not where he can go and you know, go into someone's home and, and lay on a nice bed. He's just laying on the ground. And notice what he uses for a pillow. He he's a rock. That's all he's got. So he's there, he's tired, he grabs this rock, he lays down and goes to sleep. And he has an amazing dream. Now, I know all of us dream and, you know, we have embarrassing dreams. I know I used to hate public speaking and I would always dream that, you know, I was standing up and people were laughing and I realized that I was standing there in my underwear. And, you know, we have some weird dreams or sometimes you have these dreams of you're super great at something that you're not really. But, you know, we dream about all sorts of things. But this wasn't a typical dream like we have. This was a God dream. God specifically used a dream to reveal something to Jacob. And we see this through scripture where God speaks to people through dreams. And that might be because they're not willing to listen while they're awake. But at the end of the day, Jacob now has this fascinating dream with an amazing picture of Within it, And as he's seeing, he sees this ladder which stretches to heaven. And God is at the top in heaven. And the ladder comes all the way to the earth where Jacob is. And ascending up and down and descending are these angels. And so he sees all this. uh, And it's a, a pretty fascinating picture. And the thing I want to draw your attention to is the ladder itself. Because you see the Father in heaven. You see the sinful man Jacob there on the earth. The ladder is connecting the two. Angels are going up and down it. But something that is very interesting to note is we've seen pictures of Christ throughout Genesis so far, Isaac being one of the main ones. Now we see something about this ladder itself being a picture of Jesus. And we don't have to guess. Sometimes we kind of read into certain things and and kind of guess what it symbolizes. But Jesus actually reveals to us that this was speaking of him, that he truly is the latter. Um, in the Gospel of John, Jesus invited Philip to follow him, and Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, Hey, I found the Messiah. Oh, really? Who is it? Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so he says, Well, come, let, let's meet him. Okay, so now Philip is there, and Nathaniel's there, and they, they meet Jesus. And this is what happens in John 1:47 through 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, Nathaniel, being a man of the scriptures, would realize there's only one place in the Old Testament where you have angels ascending and descending from the throne, and that is in this dream here with Jacob and the ladder is where the angels are ascending and descending and Jesus is ultimately saying to Nathaniel, hey, you're kind of focused on the place. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You need to be focused on the person. You need to be focused on the ladder itself because Jesus was the ladder. Jesus is the one way to heaven. I mean, it's a great picture because we know in John 14.6, 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's literally the ladder. We're here, sinful people on earth. God is here in heaven, and we have no way of getting to him without Jesus. He is the one that makes that possible. He is the ladder that we can now go through in order to get to heaven, in order to get to God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and man, the man Jesus. It is Jesus who bridges the gap between heaven and earth through Jesus coming down to be a man. And Jesus is the one who gives us access to God. You know, I think it's interesting, as we saw back earlier in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, men wanting to build this tower to reach the heavens ultimately want to build their way to god want to work their way to god that's kind of the the mindset of mankind you know we want to get to god ourselves and we're going to do it through our own uh, efforts our own works our own achievements you know and if you look through every religion besides christianity at the core of each of them you have this similar reality that each one of them, you know, they might be looking towards going to a different type of heaven or worshiping a different type of God, but at the end of the day, the thing that you see common with all of them is men trying to work their way to the God that they're seeking to worship. You know, it's it's the work of the person trying to get to God, where Christianity is completely opposite. God sees that none of us could get to him. None of us could work our way to him. So he came to us. He worked his way to us. He was the one who came to us to make it possible to have a relationship with him. He did all the work where every other religion is the opposite. You had to try to work your way to the deity where God came and did it all for us. And so it's a wonderful picture here that we see of Jesus and the reality of what he has done to make the way possible to have a relationship with God and the reality is a lot of people want to have a relationship with God. They just don't want to come to God on, their, on his terms. They want to come on their own. Well, I want to do it this way, or I want to do it that way, or I want to work, you know, whatever. But At the end of the day, if you want a relationship with God, there's only one way, and it's only through his terms, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the one that gives us the access. This brings us to the second thing I want us to take note of tonight. Hopefully it's just a reminder. Jesus is the ladder that connects sinful people to a holy God, and gives us access to heaven. You know, as I was studying, I I read a hymn by George Brown titled Jacob's Ladder, and uh, the the words to it I thought were just great. I want to read them to you. I think it paints a great picture of uh, what we see here with Jacob. It says this, As Jacob once traveled, he was weary one day. At night on a stone for a pillow he lay. He saw in a vision a ladder so high Its foot was on earth, and its top reached the sky. This heavenly ladder is strong and well-made, though standing for ages it is not decayed. The feeblest may venture by faith to go up, and angels will guard them from bottom to top. Lo, upward and downward they constantly go, extending a hand to the toilers below. And when a new convert sets out for the skies, their shouts to the top of the ladder arise. Another, another, they sing in their love, is seeking his home and his treasures above. And angels in glory, corresponding cry, come and welcome each penitent sinner up home. This latter is Jesus, the glorious man, God-man, whose blood freely streaming from Calvary ran. By his great atonement to heaven we rise and sing in the mansions prepared in the skies. Upon it our fathers have gone to their God. They finished their journey and gained their abode. And we are ascending and soon will be there, their song and their rapture and glory to share. Hallelujah to Jesus who died on the tree to raise up this ladder of mercy for me. Press upward, press upward, the prize is in view. A crown of bright glory is waiting for you. As Jacob sees this amazing picture of this ladder stretching down, and he probably didn't even fully grasp what it was symbolizing what for him was even more significant is what happens as he's seeing this. Now God speaks to him, and he shares with him some very important things that up to this point in time, he hasn't had this privilege. His great his grandfather, Abraham, had the privilege. His father, Isaac, has had the privilege of hearing from God. And now it's Jacob's turn. And notice what God says in verses 13 through 15. And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father. The God of Isaac, the land of which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So here God speaks to Jacob, and just like he did to Abraham and to Isaac, he gives this threefold promise to Jacob. And I'm sure Jacob probably heard this from his dad and maybe heard this from his granddad, but it's very different when God himself speaks it to you. And the three promises of, I'm going to give you and your descendants this promised land. The land is part of the promise. I'm going to bless and multiply your descendants. That's part of the promise. And then In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But notice that God gives another promise to Jacob that he doesn't give to Isaac. He doesn't give to Abraham. It was specific for the situation that Jacob found himself in and ultimately put himself in because of his own deception. But notice what God says at the end of this. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've spoken to you. Now remember, Jacob has just deceived his dad. The reason he's left the land of Canaan is not really to find a wife, it's to get away from his brother who wants to kill him. Uh, and so, you know, he's put himself in this situation. His deception has backfired. You know, his brother now wants him dead. He, he's going and he's alone. You know, he's traveling, you know, to, you know, Laban and he's on this journey alone and he's tired and he lays down and he has his dream. But, you know, imagine what he's going through and struggling and wondering, you know, am I ever going to get to go back? Because my brother's going to be there when I get there. He's still going to want to kill me. I mean, I'm sure there's thoughts of, you know, what's going to happen in the future? And so as this promise goes of, yeah, the descendants of you are going to be in the promised land. Well, I'm not even in the promised land right now. Well, God gives him some wonderful, encouraging news. Hey, I'm with you. I'm going to keep you wherever you go, wherever you end up. You know, if you're going to be with Laban, if you're going to be back here, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bring you back to this land. You can be confident that I'll get you back to the promised land, and I'm not going to leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Now, what we see here is just an amazing display of grace. Because Jacob doesn't deserve this. I mean, look what he's done. I mean, the reason he's on the run is because of his own lies, his own deception. He took advantage of his father who was blind. He goes through all these different things to do that. And here he is. You know, we would often say, Hey, you made your bed lie in it. You know, we wouldn't have much compassion probably for a guy like Jacob in this situation. And God here comes and just says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm, I'm going to do all these wonderful things to you. I promise this to you. And they go, Well, Jacob hasn't earned this. Jacob doesn't deserve this. There's nothing that Jacob's done where you think, wow, yeah, you deserve that blessing. I can see why God chose you. But the reality is neither did Isaac and definitely neither did Abraham. We've seen this reality of God giving to us that which we don't deserve. And it's a wonderful picture here with Jacob. Which brings us to our third point. God blesses us because he is gracious not because we deserve it. I think so often we can buy into the lie as Christians of, you know, I'm going to earn the blessing of God or or he's going to have to give it to me now because look what I've done. I've spent so much time reading the Bible. I've been so good or I've given so much of my time or my money or whatever. And we think sometimes, you know, I'm going to earn these promises or I'm going to earn these blessings instead of just realizing, hey, it's because of his grace. That's why I get... What I get, not because of how great I am, because how gracious he is. Well, this dream that Jacob has is going to help him understand something about God that he seemed to misunderstand. And I think it's a common thing that many Christians today misunderstand as well. Notice what Jacob discovers here in verses 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. When Jacob wakes up from this dream, this really amazing dream, and obviously the picture was amazing of what he saw, but probably for him the more amazing thing was what God said to him and this great promise that he gave to him. And now he wakes up, and he's aware of something that he wasn't aware of when he went to sleep. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He's very, very clear. I didn't know it when I went to bed last night that God was in this place, but now I'm aware that his presence is here with me. So Jacob realizes something that's true, but what he misses is that this has always been true. When he was deceiving his dad in Isaac's tent, God's presence was with him. As he started this journey, God's presence was with him. As he laid down, God's presence was with him. He had this mindset that, well, God's presence is in certain places, but it's not in other places. And wow, this is one of those places. It's such an amazing place because God's presence is here. It's not as good as that place over there because his presence is not there. He misses the reality that the word of God teaches us, that God's presence is everywhere, wherever we go. You know, David understood this important truth when he said this in Psalm 139, 7 through 11. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. David understood no matter where I go, I can go to heaven, I can go to the depths of hell, it doesn't matter where it is, God, you are everywhere. Your presence is everywhere, I can, it doesn't matter where I go, I can't escape you. You know, there are many people today, like Jacob, who don't realize that they're in the presence of God all the time, that they miss that reality that God is always with them. And one of the reasons this happens is because many people have bought into the lie that God's presence is only in a particular place, like a church building or like a temple, which you see a lot in the Old Testament of, oh, his presence is in the temple and that's it. Oh, his presence is in a church building. And you will hear Christians many times say, oh, I can't wait for Sunday so I can go to the presence of God, thinking that I'm going to go and finally be in the presence of God because I'm going to be in that church building where God's presence resides but when I leave, the presence is gone. Now, you're in his presence when you're you know, getting ready in your house, and you're in his presence when you're driving to church, and you're in his presence when you're there, and you're in his presence when you go to work the next day, or no matter where you are, you're in his presence. Now, for many of us, we probably wish that we weren't in God's presence all the time. I'm sure that Jacob wished God wasn't present as he was deceiving his dad in his dad's tent, as he was going through all that sin. I'm sure he wished that, hey, hey, <laughs> God's presence is here in Bethel. Thank goodness it's not here in my dad's tent. But that's not the reality. And I think for many of us, we we miss that. We we, we think, well, yeah, it's great. I want to be in the presence of God when I'm at church, when I've had my best spiritual behavior on. But when I'm alone and no one's watching, maybe I don't want God's presence there. Maybe when I'm doing this or doing that, I'm in a place like Jacob where I'm in sin and I would prefer God's presence not be with me. But the reality is, it is. I want you to imagine, let's say that Jesus came back to earth in flesh and said, you know what? For a week, I'm going to be with you 24-7. We're going to be hanging together. Wherever you go, I go. Wherever you do, I'll be with you. If that were the case, starting tomorrow, would Jesus' presence in your life change what movies you watch? Would it change the internet sites you go to? Would it change... What you speak about, how you act, who you hang out with. Would it change some of what you post on social media? If the answer is yes to any of those questions, then I think we bought into a lie of like, oh, it's okay. You know, I can do this. Maybe because you think God's presence isn't with me here. But if Jesus is sitting right next to you, you think, well, I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. But sometimes we just feel like, well, I can do, say, watch what I want. But as believers, we have the spirit of God dwelling within us. Everywhere we go, he goes with us. Everything we watch, he's there. Everything we say, he's there. Everything we do, he's with us. And I think sometimes, you know, we miss the reality of that and we get kind of comfortable with, hey, no one's watching. Well, maybe nobody on earth is watching, but God's watching. God sees it. You're not, you know, deceiving him. And hopefully that could be a a good challenge of, hey, Jesus is with me and I'm not doing this with Jesus with me. You know, I think we see another great truth here because Jacob's unaware of God's presence. And the only reason he becomes aware of it is because God reaches out to him. God gives this dream. God is the one who reaches out to Jacob to reveal my presence is with you, Jacob. And I love this about God because so often we are ignorant to it and especially people who are unbelievers and they don't realize that God exists and that his presence is everywhere and so God says I'm going to reach down and I'm going to reveal myself to you my my presence is going to be revealed to you. Jacob wasn't looking for God but God was looking to reveal himself to Jacob and he did it through a dream. You know God's not trying to hide himself from people. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know his presence is with us and he wants us to take advantage of that. You know, that should be the big reason of when you recognize, not just from a standpoint of it should help me not to sin because Jesus is with me, but from the other standpoint of I need to take advantage of the fact that God's presence is always with me. You know, when the Bible says pray without ceasing, it's a challenge of, hey, you have the privilege of God's presence with you all the time. You can come to him whenever you want. Take advantage of it. It's not like, well, I got to go to this building where God's presence is and then I can pray there and then when I leave, I don't have access to God anymore. No, we have complete access anytime. why because his presence is with us all the time. Don't let anything get in the way of that. The fourth thing I want you to take note of is God's presence is always with us, and he reveals himself to us because he wants a relationship with us. That's what God desires. Hey, I'm here with you. Take advantage of it. You know, my girls are constantly coming. Dad, Dad, I want time with you. I'm here. You know, spend time with me. God is there. Hey, I want time with you. Take advantage of it. But too often, we're busy doing other things instead of investing in the most important relationship of all. So Jacob has this amazing dream where God graciously blesses him. He wakes up. He understands he's in the presence of God. And now Jacob has an opportunity. How am I going to respond? God's graciously given me these blessings, these promises. He's there with me. You know, what am I going to do in response to this? And notice how Jacob responds, because it's not the way that you want to respond. Verse 18 through 22. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth. So notice what Jacob's doing here. When you first look at it, it looks like, oh, this is a good thing, but it kind of goes from good to bad. He he takes this pillow, which was a rock, and he kind of turns it up and and pours some oil on it, kind of making it as a little altar. And, you know, after he does that, he names the place that is there Bethel, which means house of God. You know, and it's kind of typical of what we think of the house of God, where that's where God's presence is. I mean, I think that's his mindset of, oh, God's presence was here with me. This is the house of God. This is where God dwells. This is so great. I'm going to come back to this rock and this place all the time. And so he's making this little altar and, you know, that in itself isn't bad. But but notice what he goes on to vow to the Lord. God has already told him, hey, I promise you to do all this stuff. And now look at his response to the promise of God. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth. Well, we see that Jacob still has a lot to learn about God's promises. Well, when God promises something, it doesn't matter ultimately what we do. There are a few promises in Scripture where God basically says, if you do this, then I'm going to do this. But the majority of the promises of God is, I'm going to do it. Regardless of you, this is what I promise to do. And I'm faithful to keep my promises. And that's the kind of promise that God gave to Jacob. He says, hey, you know, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you the promised land. And you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. None of that was if you, Jacob, worship me. If you, Jacob, follow me. If you, Jacob, do this, this, and this. God just said, no, here's the promise. Because of who I am, this is what I'm going to do for you. And then Jacob comes back with this vow. He doesn't get the concept of God's promise. He's kind of trying to make a deal with God. All right, God, if you come through like you promise, if you give me the clothes that I need, if you get me back here in peace, meaning you know, my brother's not going to try to kill me anymore. If you do all these things that you said, then I'll make you my God. And you know what? I'll even give you another incentive. I'll give you a ten, a tenth of what you give to me. I'll give back to you. I mean, doesn't that sound like such a good deal for you, God? And so he's kind of trying to give an incentive to God to be faithful to keep his promise. And you know, this is coming from a deceiver. So he's probably like, I don't keep any promises, so maybe God, you're not going to be faithful to keep yours. And so he's trying to basically manipulate God to do what he wants God to do. Um, But notice the the difference here, the contrast between God's promise versus Jacob's vow. One is totally God-centered. God's promise is all about him. And the other one is man-centered, all about Jacob. God's promise. I am the Lord. I am with you. I will bless you. I will not leave you. God's promise is all about who he is and what he will do. And that's all Jacob needed. Because of who I am, and because I tell you what I'm going to do, you can trust that I'm going to complete it. Jacob's vow, on the other hand, is if you do all these things, then I'll make you my God. And then I'll give you a tenth of what I have. It's this if and then. If you show yourself faithful, then... I guess I'll I'll make you my God and give to you. But Jacob's vow is definitely based on what he will do if God fulfills his promise. It would have much better if Jacob would have prayed like this, because you promised to be with me and keep me and to provide for all my needs and bring me back to the land which you swore to give my fathers and me, I'll completely be yours. I'll follow you. I'll trust you. You've promised it, and I believe it. The fifth thing I want you to take note of tonight is when God makes a promise You can trust in it and live your life based on it. You know, too often I think we're like Jacob and God's promises aren't enough for us. The the, the word of God isn't enough for us. He says he's going to do it, but we kind of respond, well, if you actually do it, then I'll respond the way I think I should. But until I see that you do it, don't expect anything from me. You know, I'm going to wait to see you actually be faithful to your promise before I ever move in any way, shape, or form, which shows I don't really believe it. I don't really trust it. It's going to actually have to come to pass before I'm willing to act upon it. You know, we read something in Philippians where God promises he shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We often think, well, that's nice that you said that, but I don't really believe it until I see it. When you supply all my needs, I might make you my God, and I might follow you, and I might even give you a tenth of all those things that you gave to me. Yeah, This heart and mindset that this is not the way in which God wants us to respond to his promises and recognize who he is, recognize he's always faithful. He will do it. We can trust in that. And so, hey, I promise it might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen next year, but you can take it to the bank. You can trust me. You can live your life based on what I tell you I'm going to do. Jacob did not deserve God's blessings. He didn't deserve the grace that God gave him. He struggled with the promises of God. He wanted to do something to earn it, but we need to realize, hey, God's blessings that come to us, they're coming because of his grace. We don't try to earn them. We don't try to say, okay, well, I'll give to you a tenth or I'll do this and that, and then surely you'll bless me. But no, (laughs) I believe in your son. That's the reason I get the blessing. That's the reason I get what you have for me because I've accepted what you've done. And now I am an, you know, someone who's been given so many things that I do not deserve, so many promises that are available to me that I can never earn. You know, and when you look at some of the promises and if we actually think it like, what could I do to deserve being a child of God? well, Lord, I know you adopted me, but now I'm going to really do something to, to make it worth it for you. I mean, there's nothing we can do to earn the things that God has given to us. We just need to stand in them and recognize I am an undeserving sinner and it just shows how gracious you are, God, and I'm so grateful for you and what you've done for me. Psalm 34, 8 says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. That's what Jacob needed to understand. That's what we need to understand. God's good and we're blessed when we trust him. We're blessed when we believe him. We're blessed when we really recognize he will keep his promises and we can know that for sure because we know the God that we serve. Jacob doesn't respond quite like we would hope, but remember, this is kind of the first turning point in his life. The first real encounter he has with God, he's gone from deceiver to now kind of having his eyes open to who God is a little bit and the blessing that God's giving to him. And and this is going to be, you know, the start of something important because now he's going to get to where he's going and God's going to teach him some pretty important lessons from the master deceiver. Jacob thought he was a deceiver. He's about to go meet one that's far better than him and Laban and he's going to be deceived and be on the receiving end of these things. And God's going to teach him a lot of things, but this was a starting point. He needed to hear the truth of what God promised him, of how God's going to be with him, of what God's going to do to bring him back to the promised land. This was essential before God kind of sends him to the school of hard knocks and lets him learn some important lessons. But we're going to see a lot of change in the next few chapters in Jacob's life. Uh, But it really starts with this revelation of who God is and the promises that he's given to him. Uh, And so it's going to be very